Talk RL. Talk RL podcast is all reinforcement learning all the time, featuring brilliant guests, both research and applied. Join the conversation on Twitter at Talk RL Podcast. I'm your host, Robin Chohan. Dr. Natasha Jakes is a senior research scientist at Google Brain, and she was our first guest on the show three and a half years ago on Talk RL episode one. Natasha, I'm super honored and also totally stoked to welcome you back for round two. Thanks for being here today. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm stoked to be back. <laughs> so when we did that first interview back in 2019, I remember you just wrapping up your PhD at MIT, and I can tell you've been super busy and lots lots of things have been happening in RL and, and AI in general since then. So um, can you start us off with like, what do you feel have been like the, the big, exciting advances and trends in your field since you completed your PhD? Yeah, well, I think it's kind of obvious, right? I mean, everyone's obsessed with uh, the progress in large language models that have been happening, um, you know, chat GPT, how the API is getting deployed. I think that's kind of the, I mean, image and language models, diffusion models, there's so much going on. Yeah, like you said, all this buzz around chat GPT and reinforcement learning from human feedback and the dialogue models in general. And of course, you were really early in that space. And a lot of the key open AI papers actually cite your work in this space. Uh, and there's a few of them. Um, can, can you talk a bit about how your work in that area relates to, to what open AI is doing today and what these, these models are doing today? Um, sure. Yeah. So I guess like, let me take you back to 2016 when uh, I was thinking about how do you take a pre-trained language model, but in that case, I was looking at actually LSTM, so like early stuff, and actually fine-tune it with reinforcement learning. And in uh, that time, I was actually looking not at language per se, but at like music generation and even um, generating molecules that might look like drugs. But I think the I think the molecules example is is a really good way to see this. So basically... The idea was like, we have a data set of known molecules, so we could train a supervised model on it and have it generate new molecules. But those molecules don't really have like the properties that we want, right? We might want molecules that are more um, easily able to be synthesized as a drug. So we have scores that are like the synthetic accessibility of the molecule. Um, but neither, so neither thing is perfect. If you just train on the data, you don't get optimized molecules. If you just optimize for synthetic accessibility, then you would get molecules that are just like long chains of carbon, right? So they're useless as a drug, for example. So um, what you, you can see like in this problem, you, could, you can use like reinforcement learning to optimize for drug likeness or synthetic accessibility, but it's not perfect. The data is not perfect. So how do you combine both? So what we ended up proposing was this approach where you pre-train on data and then you train with RL to optimize some reward, but you minimize the KL divergence from your pre-trained policy that you trained on data. So we call that like your pre-trained prior. And this approach lets you flexibly combine both supervised learning, get the benefit of the data, and RL, where you kind of optimize within the space that's within the space of things that are probable in the data distribution for uh, sequences that have high reward. Um, and so you can see how this is obviously related to what's going on with RLHF right now, which is that they pre-train a large language model on data set, and then they say, let's optimize for human feedback, but we're still going to minimize that KL divergence from that pre-trained prior model. So they're still an, end up using that technique. And it turns out to be to be pretty important to the framework, for to the RLHF framework. Um, 
But I was also working on RLHF, the idea of like learning from human feedback. In around 2019, we took that same KL control approach and we actually had dialogue models try to optimize for signals that they got from talking to humans in a conversation. But what what we were doing is um, instead of having the humans like rate which dialogue um, entries were good or bad or do the preference ranking that um, OpenAI is doing with RLHF, we wanted to learn from implicit signals in the conversation with the human. So they don't have to go out of their way to provide any extra feedback. What can we get from just the text that they're typing? So we did things like analyze the sentiment of the text. So if the person sounded generally happy, then we would use that as a positive reward signal to train the model. Whereas if they sounded frustrated or confused, that's probably a sign that the model is saying something nonsensical. We can use that as a negative reward. And so we worked on actually optimizing those kind of signals with the same technique. This, I mean, sounds so much like what ChatGPT is doing. Maybe the function approximator was a bit different. Maybe um, the way you got the feedback was a bit different, but under the hood, it's really it was really RLHF. Well, there's, there's key differences. So OpenAI is um, taking a different approach than we did in our 2019 paper on human feedback, where they train this reward model. So we don't do that. So what they're doing is they're saying, we're going to get a bunch of humans to rate which of um, two outputs is better. And we're going to train a model to approximate those human ratings. And that idea is coming from way earlier, like OpenAI's early work on DBRL from human preferences, if you remember that paper. And in contrast, the stuff I was doing in, in 2019 was offline RL. So I would use actual human ratings of a specific uh, output and then train on that as like one example of, of a reward. But I didn't have this generalizable reward model that could be applied across more examples. So I think there's a good argument to be made that the training of reward model approach actually seems to scale pretty well because you can sample it so many times. Can we talk about the, also the, the, like the challenges and, and, and limits of this approach? So like in the last episode, episode 38, uh, we featured OpenAI founder and inventor of PPO, John Schulman, who did uh, a lot of the RLHF work at OpenAI. And he talked about InstructGPT, the sibling model to ChatGPT, because ChatGPT wasn't released yet and there is no ChatGPT paper yet. But the paper explained that, that it required a, a lot of human feedback. And the instructions for the human raters was really detailed and super long. And uh, so there was a lot, of, there was a significant cost in getting all of that, that human feedback. So I just, I, I guess I wonder what, what you think about that. Is there, is that, that cost going to, going to limit how useful RLHF can be, or is that not a big deal because it's totally worth it? Yeah. I mean, that's a great question. And going back and reading the history of papers they've been doing on RLHF, even before InstructGPT, like in the summarization stuff, um, it seems like one of the key uh, enablers of getting RLHF to work effectively is actually investing a lot into getting quality human data. So between these, they have these two summarization papers where one, I guess, wasn't working that well. And then they have a follow-up where they said, one of the key differences, is we just did a better job recruiting raters that were going to agree with the researchers. We were taking a high touch approach of like, being able to uh, be in a shared Slack group with the raters to answer their questions and make sure they stay aligned. And like that investment in the quality of the data that they collected from humans was key in getting this to work. So it is obviously expensive. But what I was um, struck by in those papers and also in InstructGPT is that, as you'll notice in InstructGPT, the, what was it, like the 1.3 billion parameter model trained with RLHF is outperforming the 175 billion parameter model trained with supervised learning. 
So it's like a hundred X the size of a model is outperformed by just doing some of this RLHF. And obviously training a hundred X size model with supervised learning is extremely expensive in terms of compute. So I don't know what, like, I don't think OpenAI released the actual numbers and dollar value that they spent on collecting human data versus like training giant models, but you could make a good case that RLHF actually is cost effective because of it could reduce the cost of training larger models. Okay. That part makes sense to me. Um, but then when I think about the, you know, this data set that's been collected, it's, I mean, they're using the data for on policy training. Um, from what I understand, I mean, they're using PPO, which is mm-hmm. on policy method. So, and on policy methods generally, or the way I see them is you can't reuse the data because they depend on the data from this model, uh, sample or from mm. a very close by model. So if you start training on this data and the model drifts away, then is that data set going to be still useful or is it could, could it ever be used for another model? Like, is, are these like, like disposable data sets that are just only used for that model in one point in time? I wouldn't say it's disposable. Like I would still use that data because um, the data they actually use is like comparisons of summaries and then they use it to train the reward model. And so your reward model can be kind of like trained offline in that way and and used for your policy. But the actual comparisons they do, from my understanding, is they compare like um, not only their current RL model, but they're comparing the supervised baseline. They're comparing the instructions from the data set. So you, you kind of get this like general property of like, is this summary better than another summary? Right. And I think that's kind of a reusable, reusable truth about the data. If you just look at it as their general summaries and this is what makes a high quality summary, then why couldn't that apply across different models and that re- those data sets are totally reusable and maybe we can cost effectively build up these libraries of, of data sets that way. Yeah. Like to put more fine a point on it, the data that they use to train their reward model comes from a bunch of models that isn't just their RL model. So they are using quote unquote off policy data to train their reward model and it's working. The human feedback is like only valid for a limited amount of training. Like John was saying, if you train with that same reward model for too far, your performance ends up falling off at some point. So I guess the implication is that you would have to keep collecting additional human feedback after every stage, like after you've trained to a certain degree to improve it further might require a whole new data set. We didn't really get into that with that with the chat with John, but I wonder if you had any comment about that part. I can't say as much for what's going on with OpenAI's work, but I can say I observe this phenomenon in my own work trying to optimize for reward, but still do something probable under the data. And you can definitely sort of overexploit the reward function. So like when I was training dialogue models, um, we had this reward function that would reward the dialogue model for having a conversation with a human such that the human um, seemed positive, seemed to be responding positively, but that the dialogue model itself was outputting sort of like um, high sentiment text and stuff like that. And we had a very limited amount of data. So I think we might have like quickly overfit to the data and the rewards that were in it. And what you see is the policy kind of like collapse a little bit on um so its objective is to stay with stay within something that's probable under the data distribution but maximize the reward rl is ultimately even though we're using maximum entropy rl it's trying to find the optimal policy so it doesn't really care like it 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 ends up having sort of a really restricted set of behaviors where it could get kind of repetitive and sort of exploit the reward function so our agent with those rewards kind of got overly positive, polite, and cheerful. So I always joke that it was like the most Canadian dialogue agent you could train. Um, We can say that because we're two Canadians. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Um, 
But yeah, it's it was kind of collapsing. Like it, the diversity, it came at a cost of like diversity in the text that was output. So I wonder if there's something similar going on with um, their results about like training too long on the reward model actually leads to diminishing and then eventually like negative returns. And it seems that um, the reward model isn't perfect, right? If you look at the accuracy of the reward model on the validation data, it's like in the 70s or something. So it's not perfectly describing what is quality. So if you really overfit to that reward model, it's not clear that it's going to be comprehensive enough to describe good good outputs. I gather that like some of your past work in this in this area was like doing RL at the token level, like considering each token as a separate action, maybe sequence tutor and sci learning from your way off policy paper. Was that how it worked? Was it individual token actions? Yes, but I would mention that so is instruct GPT if you dig into it. So what they end up doing is um, you, what you can do, it's a little easier in policy gradients because you can get the probability of the whole sequence by just summing the probabilities over the individual tokens. But at the end of the day, your loss is still being propagated into your model at the token level by increasing or decreasing token level probabilities. Oh, so you're saying when they, because the paper says that it framed it as a bandit. And to me, that meant the entire sample, all the tokens together were taken as one action. But you're saying because of the way it's constructed, then it still breaks down the token level probabilities? Yeah, you can write the math as like reward of the entire sequence, reward of the entire output times probability of the entire output. But under the hood, the way you get probability of the entire output is a sum of the token level probabilities. So the way that that's going to actually change the model is to affect token level probabilities. This is why I like having this podcast because that that question has been bugging me for a while. I'm like, who am I? Who's going to explain this to me? So thank you for clearing that up uh, for me, Natasha. That's really cool. No problem. So does that mean there's no benefit to looking at it as a at a token level, or like, is it always going to be this way? Because like, one, I think John was saying that it's like more tractable to do it this way as a whole sample. So what they're actually doing that might be a little bit different than token level RL normally is like their discount factor is one. So they apply the same reward to all of the tokens in the sequence. And there's no discount where like you're getting um, like later in the sequence, you're discounting the reward you're going to get at the end of the sequence or whatever, or sorry, earlier in the sequence you're discounting. So that is a difference. That makes sense. It seems to be working well for them. Yeah. Because it matters just as much what you say at the end. Like if you say not in capital letters, then that's kind of important. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I think in my work, I, if I recall correctly, we had experimented. So we exper- we had rewards that were at the sequence level as well, um, even at the level of the whole dialogue. So we had stuff about like, how long does the conversation go on, which is, of course, across many dialogue turns. And then we had sentence level rewards that were spread equally over the tokens in the sentence. But for something like conversation length, we did have a discount factor. You aren't sure the conversation is going to go on as long as it is at the beginning, so you discount that reward. But once you're already having a long conversation, then the the reward is higher. Um, And it was very difficult to optimize those discounted rewards across the whole conversation. So you combine rewards at different levels. Yeah, yeah. Which kind of reminds me of this recursive reward modeling there was a paper from uh, Like et al. out of DeepMind. It was in 2018. It seems like the idea here is taking this whole RLHF further and stacking them for more complex domains where we have models that help the humans provide the, the human feedback and, and stacking them up. Do you have any thoughts about um, recursive reward models? Do you think that's a, a promising way forward or like are we going to need that soon? I mean, so my understanding of their example of like a recursive reward model is the user wants to write a fantasy novel. But 
evaluate, like writing a whole novel and then having that evaluated would be very expensive and you'd get very little data. So you could have a bunch of RLHF trained assistants that do things like check the grammar or um, check if the, or summarize the character development up to this point or something like that. Uh, and that can assist the user in doing the task. So I think like, sure, that idea makes sense. Um, if you want to, if I were to make a company that's helping people write novels, I would do it at that level rather than at the level of the whole novel. Right. Um, so, so that's definitely cool. But in terms of like pushing forward the boundaries of RLHF, I think what I would bet on, and maybe I'm just biased because this is literally my own work, but I would still bet on this idea of, um, trying to get other forms of feedback than just like, humans comparing two answers and rate like ranking them. So I'm not saying my work is the perfect answer, but we were trying to get this type of implicit signal that you're getting during the interaction all the time. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, when you're speaking about, oh, RLHF is so expensive to collect the human data. Well, what if you could be getting data for free in any way that's pervasively in your interactions? And so it doesn't cost anything additional to find it. So like, if okay, imagine you're using... OpenAI playground or something to play with chat GPT. How many times did you like rephrase the same prompt until you got some behavior and then stopped? Yeah, they must be like, using could that, that be on a some level, right? But not yet. Do you think so? I don't know. <laughs> you would hope so. Cause otherwise how are they going to scale this? Like they, they also have thumbs up and thumbs down buttons. Yeah. They, they don't, they kind of have some limited feedback though right now. Right. And it's not always about whether the sentiment's good. Like you could be wanting to write something scary. Exactly. Yes. Sentiment isn't perfect. Um, you could also look at like, okay, I prompt GBT, I get some output. Like if they had a way to like edit that output in the editor, which I don't know, actually know if they do in Playground. I have to I have to look at that again. But any edits I made to the text would be a signal that I didn't like it. Like I need to fix this. So that could be a signal you could be training on with RLHF. I, I feel like that's just going to be more scalable. And ultimately it's not the ground truth of the human rating of quality, but what we show in our work, it's like, even though sentiment is very, and the other stuff, we didn't just use sentiment. We use a bunch of stuff, but even though those are imperfect and only proxy measures, optimizing for those things still did better than optimizing for the thumbs up, thumbs down that we built into the interface mm. because just no one wants to bother providing that. Yeah. Like you have to go out of your way, out of the normal interaction that you're trying to use to like sort of altruistically provide this extra feedback and people just don't. So yeah, yeah I think totally. more scalable signals is the right direction. That makes so much sense. Are you up for talking about AGI? <laughs> Depends what the question is. <laughs> so first of all, do you think it's like, it's something we should be talking about and thinking about these days, or is it like a distant fantasy that's just not really worth talking about? Ah, oh, man, I always get a little bit frustrated with like AGI conversations, because nobody really knows what they're talking about when they say AGI. Like, it's not clear what the definition is. And if you try to pin people down, it can get a little bit circular. So like, you know, I've had people tell me, oh, AGI is coming in five years, right? And I say, okay, well, so what do you, how do you reconcile that with the fact that CEOs of self-driving car companies think that fully autonomous self-driving isn't coming for 20 years? Right. So if AGI is in five and my, then my definition of AGI might be it can do everything a human can do, but better. Um, that doesn't make sense. Right. If, if, it, if it can't drive a car, it's not AGI. But then people will say, oh, but it doesn't have to be embodied and it can still be AGI. And OK, but then what is it doing? Like, it's, it's just such a muddy, muddy concept. That's a really right. Good point. I've also been in these arguments or discussions. And then in the end, we just realize we have different definitions. And then there's no point in arguing about two words that mean different things. All of that aside, I do think 
I have been really impressed and even a little bit concerned about the pace of progress. Like it, stuff is happening so fast that if you want to just define AGI as highly disruptive, fast advancements in AI technology, I think we're already there, right? Like look at ChatGPT, right? Uh, universities are having to revise their entire curriculum around writing take-home essays because you can just get ChatGPT to write you an essay better than an undergrad can. So it's already super disruptive. Like where we are now is already super disruptive. Yeah, it might not be like AGI, do all the jobs AGI, but if it's it's general, it's to me, ChatGPT is the first thing I've seen that really is so general. Like nothing has been that general before that imagining where that generality could take us in a few years does make me think your point about the self-driving vehicles is well taken. Like I think everyone recognizes it's been a bit of a shit show with people predicting that it's going to come in two years and three years and it just keeps getting pushed back and the timelines just get longer. I think embodiment is really hard. I think fitting to the long tail of stuff in the real world is really hard. So you might've seen this example. I think like Andre Karpathy talked about it for Tesla um, where they had an accident because uh there was a, the car per- couldn't perceive this thing that happened, which was a semi truck carrying a semi truck carrying a semi truck. So like a truck on a truck on a truck. And they were just like that. I hadn't even seen that before. It wasn't in the support of the training data. And of course we know these models, like if they get off the support of the training data, don't do that well. So how will you ever curate a data set that's going to cover every single thing in the real world? I would argue that you can't, especially because the real world is non-stationary. It's always changing. So new things are always being introduced. So sort of definitionally, you can't cover everything that might happen in the real world. Um, and so, you know, that's why I'm excited about some of these approaches. It sounds like you talked about this on a previous episode, but like, um, I've been working on this like adversarial environment design stuff or unsupervised environment design stuff for RL agents, where you actually try to search for things that can make your model fail and like generate those problems um, and train on them. And I think that could be an approach that is more tenable than just supervised learning on a limited data set. Totally. Yeah. We spoke with your colleague, Michael Dennis, who was a co-author of yours on the paired paper. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and I met him as, at the poster session at, I think it was ICML. I, I loved that right away, and then I wasn't surprised at all to find your name on it. I didn't know that at first. <laughs> I was like, that makes total sense. That's exactly the type of thing Natasha would come up with. The idea of embodiment, basically robotics is super hard, or anything that has to touch mm, yes. real-world sensors. And it seems what ChatGPT has shown us is if we can stay in the abstract world of text, we actually have like magic powers even today in 2022, 2023, um, we could do a lot with the techniques we already have in that we were staying in the world of text and abstract thought and now and and code and um, and ab- abstract symbols basically so maybe it it goes to the, back to that point of of the real world and robotics just being turning out to be the really hard stuff the animal intelligence being super hard and the abstract thought that we yeah. used to think we made us so special is turning out to be maybe way easier we've already solved go that we thought was impossible not long ago and and uh, ChatGPT is doing, showing us a level of generality we could not expect from robotics, you know, f- maybe for ages. 
Yeah. And I mean, I, you probably remember the name of this principle better than I do, but it's sort of the principle that uh, things for that are really hard for us to solve, like chess and Go, are actually easy to get AI to solve, maybe because we have more awareness of the process. But like the most low level stuff about, you know, manipulation, like how do you pick something up with your hand is a very challenging problem. Editor's note, I forgot. So I looked it up afterwards. This is more of X paradox. I want to share like my favorite anecdote when thinking about why embodiment is so hard. Please. I've been working on this, this problem of um, language conditioned RL agents. So they take a natural language instruction, they try to follow it and do something in the world. Right. And uh, so I was in, in that space, I was reading this paper from DeepMind, which is uh, imitating interactive intelligence. And they have this sort of simulated world where a robot can walk around and it's kind of like a video game, like a low res video game kind of environment. So not super high res visuals, but it can do things like um, it'll get an instruction like pick up the orange duck and put it on the bed or pick up the cup and put it on the table or something like that. Right. And they invested like two years. There's a team of 30 people. I heard they spent millions of dollars on this project. Right. They collect this massive human data set of um people giving instructions and then trying to follow those instructions in the environment. And the data set they collect is so massive that I think half of the instructions in the data set are exact duplicates of each other. So they'd have two copies of it, pick up the orange duck and put it on the table or whatever. Um, And they train on this to the best of their ability. And guess what their success rate in actually following these instructions? Like guess what percentage of the time they can successfully follow the instructions in this environment? I'm just trying to take a cue from you. I don't. I, I vaguely remember this paper, but I'm going to guess it was terrible, like five percent. Not five percent, but it's fifty percent. Fifty percent. Okay. What do you feel about that number? Is it is shockingly low? Or I shockingly think it's high? low for that much investment and for a pretty simple problem. Like it just it's surprising that they can't do better. And I think that just illustrates like how hard this. You know, we've seen that you can tie text and images together pretty effectively. Like we're seeing all these text to image generation models that are compositional. They're beautiful. They're working really well. Um, So I don't think that's the problem. But just like adding this idea of navigating a physical body in the environment to carry out the task while perceiving vision and linking it to the text just becomes so hard. And and it's very hard to get anything working. Yeah, 50%. I don't know. It's higher than I thought, honestly. <laughs> but if if we look at like uh, we so we talked to Carol Hausman oh, yeah. um, here a few episodes back and working on this the, the Saycan yes. robot, which is the kitchen robot that you can give verbal, which becomes textual instructions, and it is using RL and it is actually doing things in a real kitchen with the you know in the real world and sponging things up and and um, I mean a few things struck me about that. Like and they, they were doing something that sounds kind of similar to what you're describing. And, but it, it, I was amazed by how much they had to divide up the problem yes. and how much work it was to build all the parts. Cause they had to make separate value functions for all the yes. skills and, and then, but I think connecting it to the text seemed to be kind of the easier part. Well, so they actually, they actually don't connect text to embodiment, I would argue. So first, let me say, Carol's an amazing person. He's great. Saycan is so great of a paper that Google is amazingly excited. And I think, so I'm actually doing some work that's like a follow-up to Saycan. And it's literally the most crowded research area I've ever been in. Like there's so many Google interns working on follow-ups to Saycan. Like everyone's excited. So it's great work. So not to trash the work at all. But they actually do separate the problem of understanding the language and doing the embodied tasks almost completely. 
because the understanding of the language is entirely offloaded to a pre-trained large language model. And then the executing of tasks is train, you train a bunch of low level robotic policies that are able to like pick something up or do this. And you just select which low level robotics policy to execute based on what looks probable under the language model and what has the highest value estimate for those different policies. But there's no, there's no network that's really doing high level language understanding and embodied manipulation at the same time. Yeah, I, I thought it was innovative how they separated that so they didn't really have to worry about that. Right. Way. They kind of like offloaded that whole problem to the LLM without having the LLM know anything about robotics. It's it's definitely innovative and it works super well. And I think that's why the paper is exciting. But it's kind of, to me, like I was really excited about this idea of an embodied agent that could really understand language and do embodied stuff at the same time. Because if you think, okay, talking about what is AGI, if we just use a definition of something that's like the maximally general representation of knowledge, then you should have something that can not only understand uh, text, but understand how the text is mapped to images in the world, because that's already going to expand your representation, but understand how that maps to physics and how to navigate the world. And so it'd be so cool if we could have an agent that actually like in the same network is encoding all of those things. This this is also just really reminding me of why I really like talking with you, Natasha, because <laughs> you're so passionate about this stuff. And also, you don't pull any punches. You will call a spade a spade, no matter what goes <laughs> on it. And, uh, and, and you see the big picture and, you know, you're so critical and, and sharp. So, and, and that's, that's honestly the spirit that I, that I was looking for w- with this whole show. <laughs> I hope I'm not sounding too critical. I mean, I love this work, so. <laughs> I think my feedback on SACAN on a very high level is that they're depending on the language model to already know what makes sense in that kitchen. But if they were in an untraditional kitchen or they invented a new type of kitchen or they were in some kind of space where the language model didn't really get it, then none of that would work. Um, they're, they're depending on common sense of the language model to know what order to do things in the kitchen. And they're assuming that common sense is, is, is common. Yeah. And it's hard because they're, they're kind of missing this like pragmatics thing too. So humans could give you ambiguous instructions about what to do in the kitchen that could only be resolved by looking around the kitchen. Like if they just said, get me that plate and there's multiple plates, you know, how do you resolve that? Well, now you might want to use pragmatics about like the the plate that's closer to the human or, or something about like visually assessing the environment and say, not going to be able to do that. Right. So. Well, they, they had the inner monologue uh, edition, which added these, this idea of having other voices. And so that might be able to, if they had an, another voice that was like describing what the person's doing or looking mm. at injected into the conversation yeah. and inner monologue to me seemed very promising. That was, that was the second part of our conversation with Carol and Faye. And that was, that was fascinating to me and a little spooky. <laughs> This robot has an inner monologue going. Um, But that let them leverage the language model and have more, a lot more input into it. That's cool. And it seemed like an extensible approach. That's cool. That's, that could be quite promising. I don't know. I still just want to see a model that does vision, text and embodiment. I'm excited for that when that comes. I see that you're planning to return to academia uh, as an assistant professor at U Washington. Is that right? That's right. Cool. So that's an interesting choice um, to me after working at you know, leading uh, labs in the industry. And I bet some people are, might be looking to, to move the opposite direction, especially a lot of people have talked about the challenges of doing cutting edge AI on academic budgets, 
when more and more of this AI depends on scale, that that becomes very expensive. So can you tell us more about that decision? Um, what drew you back to academia? What's your thought process here? Yeah, I mean, so you might think like, if I want to contribute to AI, I need a massive compute budget, and I need to be training these large models. And, and you know, how can academics afford that? But what I actually see happening as a result of this is that what's going on in industry is that more and more um, people and in, in, researchers in industry are being encouraged to sort of amalgamate into these large, large teams of 30 or 50 authors, where they're all just working on what looks more like a large scale engineering effort to scale up a research idea that's kind of already been proven out, right? So you'll see like, there's big teams at Google that are now trying to work on RLHF. And the RLHF they're doing is is very similar to what OpenAI is doing. They're just trying to actually scale it up and write their own version of the infrastructure and stuff like that. Um, and I hear the same thing is going on. It's already was the case at OpenAI where they're a little less fo- focused on publishing, um, a little more focused on scaling up in big teams, uh, apparently pressure at DeepMind is doing something similar where if you know if you're pursuing your own little creative research direction that's going to be less tenable than actually jumping onto a big team and kind of contributing in that way so if you're interested in, is in doing creative research novel research that sort of hasn't been proven out already and coming up with new ideas and testing them out i think there's less room for that in industry right now um, and I actually care a lot about research freedom and the, the ability to kind of like think of a clever idea and, and test it out myself and see if it's going to work. And I think there's a real role for that, right? Obviously, scaling this stuff up in industry works really well. But the, what actually works is they do end up using ideas that were innovated in academia and incorporating that into what they're scaling up. So if you, we were talking at the beginning of this uh, podcast about, you know, just that idea of doing kale control from your prior is something that I did on a very, very small scale in academia that ends up being useful in the system eventually, right? In the system that gets scaled up. So I see the role of academics to do that same kind of proof of concept work, like discover these new novel research ideas that work, and then industry can have the role of scaling them up. Right. And so it just depends on what you want to be doing. Like, do you want to be on a giant team working on infrastructure or do you want to be doing the kind of more researchy, like testing out ideas thing? And for me, I'm much more excited about the latter. That makes total sense. And like, I guess you're getting the credit from the citations from these big papers for that early work, but maybe not so much the public credit because like everyone's just points to check <laughs> and they think that is AI, like OpenAI invented AI, but they're building on like the shoulders of all these giants from the past, including yourself and all the academics know this, but for the public, it's like, oh, look, they solved AI. That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, I think my... My objective is more about like, well, I just enjoy the process of trying like testing out ideas and seeing if they work. But my objective is much more like, did you end up contributing something that was useful rather than did you get the glory? That's that's very legitimate. Too legit. Okay, so um, what do you plan to work on at UW? Have you do you have a clear idea of that, or is that something that you'll decide? Um, I do have a clear idea because you kind of, they don't give you the job unless you can kind of sell it and <laughs> sell what you're going to do. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I mean, the pitch that I was kind of pitching on the faculty job market is like, um, I want to do this thing called social reinforcement learning. And the idea is what are the benefits you can get in terms of improving AI when you consider the case that you're likely going to be learning in an environment with other intelligent agents? 
So you can either think about that as like setting up a multi-agent system to make your agent more robust. That would be like paired would be in that kind of category of thing. Or you could think about this idea that, you know, for most of what we want AI to do, you might be deployed in environments where there are humans and humans are pretty smart and have a lot of knowledge that might benefit you when you're trying to do a task. So not only thinking about how to flexibly learn from humans, like when I think about social learning, I don't think about just indiscriminately imitating every human, but maybe kind of the, the, the human skill of social learning is about identifying which models are actually worth learning from and when you should rely on learning from others versus your independent exploration. So I think that's like a whole set of questions. And then finally, I want to just make AI that's useful for interacting with humans. So, you know, how do you interact with a new human you've never seen before and cooperate with them to solve a task. So kind of the zero shot cooperation problem. How do you perceive what goal they're trying to solve? Um, how do you learn from their feedback? Um, and this is including types of implicit feedback. And then finally, this whole branch of like, how do you communicate with humans in natural language to solve tasks? So that's why I've been working on this kind of language condition RL. How do you train language models with human feedback? This whole set of things. Th that's the pitch. Awesome. And, and they obviously loved it because you're hired. <laughs> yeah, it depends. But yeah, I, I'm excited. So, I mean, it, it sounds like a lot of stuff that I had to learn as, as a young person, as a awkward, nerdy teen, how to talk to humans, <laughs> what the heck they want, yeah. who a human should I imitate. Right, exactly. And then can you, do you want to talk about some of your recent papers since you've been on last, which is three and a half years ago, I've seen either on Google Scholar, um, there's been lots of lots of papers since then with your name on them. Uh, but there was a few that that we had kind of talked about touching on today, including basis and sci-fi. Should we talk about those? Yeah, sure. So I think maybe I'll also add another paper that was like sort of the precursor to sci-fi from my perspective, really touching on this idea of like, what is social learning versus just like imitation learning versus RL. So I'm, I'm really thinking about this problem, like, you're in an environment with other agents that might have knowledge that's relevant to the task, but you don't know if they do, and they're pursuing self-interested goals. So you can think about like an autonomous car on the road. There are other cars that are driving, but some of them are actually bad drivers, so you don't want to sort of indiscriminately imitate. Or you're a robot in an office picking up trash. There are humans that are going about their day, but they don't want to stop and sort of explicitly teach you what to do. They're trying to get work done. So how do you benefit from learning from them? Um, so we had a couple of papers on this. The first paper was actually with uh, Kamal and Deuce, who's now at Anthropic. Um, and he, his paper was looking at, do RL agents benefit from social learning by default? So if you're in an environment with another agent that's sort of constantly showing you uh, how to do the task correctly, do you learn any faster than an RL agent that's in an environment by itself? And his conclusion was actually, no, <laughs> they don't. So default RL agents are actually really bad at social learning. And his work showed that if you just add this auxiliary prediction task, like predicting your own next observation, then you're implicitly modeling what's going on with the other agents in the environment. That makes its way into your representation and you're more able to learn from their behavior. And that the cool part about this is if you actually learn the social learning behavior, like how to learn from other agents in your environment, then when you can actually generalize much more effectively to a totally new task that you've never seen before, because you can apply that skill of social learning to master the new task. So you've sort of learned how to socially learn. And those social learning agents end up generalizing a lot better than agents that are trained with imitation learning or with RL at generalizing to new tasks. So I think that's quite exciting. 
Um, and then sci-fi learning was like a follow-up that does the social learning in a much more effective way. So basically, um, it's going to be hard to describe. It's a little, it's kind of uses the math of successor features. So it might be a little hard to describe on a podcast, but the idea is, um, you're going to model not only your own policy, but every other agent's policy in the environment in a way that kind of disentangles a representation of the states that they're going to experience from the rewards that they're trying to optimize. So using this like successor representation. And what that lets you do is you can kind of take out the part that models the other agent's rewards and substitute your own reward function in with the other agent's policy. And that lets you compute, hey, if I were to act like the other agent right now, if I were to copy, you know, agent two over here, would I actually get more rewards under my own reward function? And so you can, that lets you just flexibly choose who and what to imitate and when. So at every time step, you can choose to rely on your own policy, or you can choose to copy someone else, and you can choose who's the most appropriate person to copy. And what we show is that that actually gets you um, better performance than either purely relying on imitation learning, which is going to fail if the other agents are doing bad stuff, or purely relying on RL, which is you're going to miss out on a bunch of useful behaviors that other agents know how to do if you're just trying to discover everything yourself. So I think that whole direction is actually quite interesting to me. I did skim that paper, and it seemed like it reminded me of an old multi-agent competition I once did, Bomberman, and it was quite challenging to work with these other agents. And it would have been pretty cool to be able to imitate them, uh, imitate them better. And I could imagine that for humans, we're learning from other people all the time, nonstop, yeah. um, ever since, probably since birth. And, and we haven't really spent as much time thinking about that in AI. That's something I'm really excited about. I don't know if we talked about this last time, but this whole idea that um, a big component of human intelligence and what sets us apart from other animals or, um, you know, other forms of intelligence is that we rely so heavily on social learning. Like we discover almost nothing completely independently. Uh, like look at research, right? So much of it is reading what everyone else has done and then making a tiny tweak on top, right? So it's just that kind of building on standing on the shoulders of giants, learning from others, I see is really important. I also see social learning as a path to address this sort of like truck on truck on truck problem we were talking about earlier. Like you kind of need adaptive online generalization to solve some of these safety critical ad ad like problems. So imagine I'm a self-driving car and I encounter a situation that I've never seen in my training data, which is like, um, there's a big flood and the, the bridge I'm trying to go under is completely flooded. Right. And if I just drive forward, I can actually destroy my car and get the passengers in danger. Right. Um, but the other humans are on the road are probably going to be pretty smart and realize what they should do, or it'll have a better chance of realizing it than me, the self-driving car. So maybe I should be at that point actually relying on more on social learning to take cues from others and figure, use that as a way to adapt to the situation um, rather than just relying on my pre-training data. And this isn't just my idea. Like I think Anka Dragon has a nice paper on this. Um, when you're, if you're a self-driving car is uncertain, it should be copying other agents. But I think, I think there's something really promising there. Yeah, coming back to that truck on truck on truck, like there's no limit to what things you might stack. Like, <laughs> like I used to live in India and the stuff you would see on a truck in India is just so unpredictable. But but the way I recognize what it is is I is I look at the lower the lower part of it and I'm like, "Oh, it has truck wheels." Mm. No matter no matter what weird thing is on top, that is a truck. 
And I think the the models that we have right now aren't very good at like ignoring things, distracting yeah. stuff. That's that's more a problem with the function approximator. It's not I don't think it's a real RL issue, but but um that's always disappointed me that we haven't we haven't somehow got past that distractor feature. That's a really insightful point. And I think, you know, there's many different things we have to solve with AI. If I'm channeling like Josh Tenenbaum's answer to the problem you just brought up, I mean, he would basically, well, I don't know how good of a job I can do channeling Josh Tenenbaum, but he would say like, we need more symbolic representations where we can generalize a representation to understand that like a truck with hay on it is still fundamentally a truck. Like there's some fundamental characteristics that make the definition of this thing. And we shouldn't be just, if we're just doing like this purely inductive deep learning thing of like, I've seen a bazillion examples of a truck and therefore I can recognize a truck, but if it goes out of my distribution, I can't recognize it. I mean, maybe this is the problem of representation. And just to be very like speculative, I do think there's something promising about um, models that integrate language. Speaking of why I want to put language models into agents that actually like put an actual language representation into an RL agent, like because language is compositional, you get these kind of compositional representations that could potentially help you generalize better. So like, if you look at like image and language models, um, you know, like clip, or you look at all these image generation models, um, we see very strong evidence of compositionality, right? Like you get these prompts that clearly have never been in the training data. Um, and they're able to generate convincing images of them. And I think that's just because language helps you organize your representation in a way that, um, allows you to combine these components. So maybe like a compositional representation of a truck is like, yeah, it's more like it definitely has to have wheels, but it doesn't matter what it's carrying. This reminds me of a poster I saw at ICML called Concept Bottleneck Model. Oh, yeah, exactly. I'm doing a Concept Bottleneck Model for a multi-agent interpretability paper. I think we're going to release it on archive very soon. I'm very excited about it. But um, yeah, it's a, it's a cool idea. Great, looking forward to that too. <laughs> yeah, I just want to say, it's always such a good time chatting with you. It's really enjoyable. I always learn so much. I'm inspired. I can't wait to see what you come up with next. Um, thanks so much for sharing your time with, with the Talk Laurel audience, Natasha Jakes. Thank you so much. I really appreciate being here.